We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's take a look here at uh, Mark chapter 1. Let me ask you, when I say the word Galilee, what comes to mind? We got something here on Galilee? Yeah, Galilee. Galilee conjures up the most pleasant of images. It's where Jesus grew up. It's a land of rivers, a land of wells, a land of olives. Galilee is the highlands of Israel. Israel sits on a slant. At the very topmost is the Mount Hermon, where you can ski on it. It has snow on it. The lowest point is the Dead Sea at the southern tip, and it's the lowest place on planet Earth. Did you know that? It's the lowest place. Matter of fact, you can't get sunburned at the, uh, the Dead Sea because the ultraviolet rays won't reach you. So it's worth the price of a tour. All right. And so that's the, the rains start north in the highlands, Galilee, and they come down. It's 40 miles by 25 miles. It's like going here to Decatur and then down to Fort Worth and back. It's a thousand square miles. It's surrounded by the Sea of Galilee. It's within the tribes of Zebulun, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher surround the Sea of Galilee. It is stigmatized. It was called by Israel Galilee of the Gentiles because it is where the Assyrians came through and captured the Jews in 722, and it was repopulated later on, and they were surrounded by the Gentiles as opposed to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it was a place where it was said, if you wanted to get holy, you went to Jerusalem. If you wanted to get rich, you went to Galilee. It was a place where you could be ambitious and enterprising in business. It's the place of the irreligious because it was felt that they couldn't get down to the feasts and festivals as much as those in Jerusalem. It even had a speech impediment. Do you remember where the girl said to Peter, you speak as one of them, you're with them. They had a speech impediment. Uh, they were very passionate politically. Uh, this was a place that was resettled after the Greeks. It was resettled by Judas Maccabees. You ever heard of Judas the Hammer of the Maccabean Revolt? Well, that was uh, Galilee that was reestablished. A fellow in the time of Rome was named Judas of Galilee that began a party known as the Zealots. And so whether you're killing Greeks or killing Romans, that was Galilee. It is uh, a group of people that one has said was sun-bronzed, hard-working, and didn't particularly like being looked down upon by those in the south of Judea. They were a people that would raise up sons that would be called sons of thunder. They would have a guy named Simon Peter that would split your head with a sword and uh, would call, be anxious to call down fire upon a village that did not act in hospitality towards you. Those were the Galileans. They form 11 out of 12 of Jesus' men. Uh, Nazareth, Capernaum, Cana, Nain, Bethsaida, Magdala were cities in and around the area of Galilee. If you generally ask folks that go on a cruise, where's your favorite place? Not a cruise, but a, a, a tour of Israel. They will say, well, either Jerusalem, because it's so... Um, full of history, or they will say Galilee, because Galilee is just, the air is just easy to breathe, the pace is slowed down, and it's just pretty. It's the most important thousand square miles on planet Earth is Galilee. Matter of fact, in the 60s, we used to sing, I want to walk like, I want to talk like, I want to be like the man from Galilee. Everybody knew what that meant. Uh, put your hand in the hand of the man. Y'all remember that? Take a look at yourself and you can look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Christians, early Christians were simply called Galileans. And so that's what Mark begins with here in verse 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, let me see if I can put this in stereo for you. 
that between verse 13 and verse 14, you have about a six-month period that is called the Judean ministry, that only the gospel of John covers it. Matthew, Mark, Luke do not. It's in the Judean ministry that you will see Christ in John 1 clear the temple for the first time. He clears the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. Soon as he comes, according to the prophecy of uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, he comes to the temple and he cleanses it. Um, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, he goes up north and they have a wedding feast and he does his first miracle. That's in the Judean ministry. Uh, his conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born again, is in the Judean ministry. Uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, come heal my son, go, your son lives. That's the Judean ministry. And whenever he went up and he left Judea to go up into Samaria to get to Galilee, and he went into a well at Samaria, and there he encountered the woman at the well. Now, I want to show you something here. Go take your Bible, go to your left to the Gospel of John in chapter 4. Better still, go to your right. Yeah, I just wanted to test you. If you went to your left, I'm really disappointed in you. Yes, the Gospel of John in chapter 4. Where it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew, in verse 1, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were. Incidentally, Jesus collects his first six disciples that were men of Galilee that were down in Judea that were followers of John the Baptist. Peter, Andrew, James, John, then a fellow named Philip and a fellow named Nathaniel were all gathered during the Judean ministry. But here he goes north, and the reason is because he knew the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And so why did he leave? It's because things were heating up. He heard that the Pharisees heard that his ministry was eclipsing John's. And things are starting to heat up at this time, that they're realizing this is not the Redeemer we were looking for. We were looking for a military politician to elevate us over our enemies. John preaching, repent the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preaching, repent the kingdom of heaven. They didn't like that word, repent. I want to be blessed and elevated but we're not sure we want to be changed. And I sure don't want to sorrow and admit that I have followed a wrong path. Sometimes I'll have people that come to me for counsel and we'll sit down and talk and we look at the debacle that they are in. And I won't address the debacle that they are in. I will address the problem that got them there. That your problem, dear, is that you're an atheist. Excuse me? Yes. You have run off on your own, oblivious of God. Even though you may hold to a G-O-D figure, you're an atheist. And that's why you have lived your life in atheism and have found yourself in the mess you're in. Because life isn't made for humans that do not walk with God. You can't do that. It's impossible. Can I bid you goodbye, sir? Thank you. It's been a marvelous time. And they don't want to get fixed. And so they, they really don't like the process of change, that there's an outside chance I might not be as smart as I thought. That's hard to believe, that there's an outside chance maybe I'm not as good as I thought or as strong as I thought. Maybe I am in desperate need of God, and maybe the reason I'm in this mess is because of my wife. Okay. And so I'm not the counselor that they're looking for. Okay, that's why you will always pay before you come whenever I counsel you, okay? I'm just kidding. And so he came to his own and his own received him not. And so that is beginning right now. And so Jesus is not ready for this final confrontation. 
That's going to happen three years later at Passover where he will die for man's sin. Now he has a job to do to ready a group of men and to prepare a world. And so he goes away into Galilee. Uh, go back here to the gospel of Mark. And so here in Galilee in verse 14, he is going to collect his followers. Most of his followers are going to be from Galilee, northern people. Um, he is going to collect the 12, except for Judas, will all come from Galilee. And he's going to collect in Galilee a circle of women that will be healed by him, blessed by him, and will become your first diaconate of women, like deaconesses. And they're going to leave where they are and follow after him and minister to him. The most famous being Mary Magdalene. And so he moves away close to his home. Now, this is prophesied. I'd like you to look to your left, not your right, but your left to Matthew chapter uh, three or four. Let me see if I get there before you. Let's see, yes, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. When Christ came north into Galilee, the first place he went to was his hometown. And he spoke there in the synagogue. Only Luke records it. And they didn't like what he was saying. And they took him to the edge of a hill to throw him off. And so only Luke records that. And he said, a prophet is without honor in his own town. And so he left and he went to the city of Capernaum. And he said, it is by the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Verse 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This moving of Jesus from the origin of his ministry in Judea into Galilee was prophesied. And he goes here in verse 15 to Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years prior, and says, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, he didn't have to explain that. That's what everybody called Galilee. There was a Roman legion in Galilee. The Assyrians, the uh, Babylonians, the Syrians, the um, uh, Tyrians, the Phoenicians were all in this area. It wasn't considered a holy place. And so Galilee of the Gentiles, a people who were sitting in darkness, saw a great light. Whenever the Assyrians in 722 conquered Israel, they conquered Zebulun, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali and hauled them into exile. They returned there uh, years later under uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Joshua the high priest and Judas Maccabees resettled the area. But they simply were called the people who were in darkness, the first people to be taken captive are going to be the first people to recognize Jesus. And so the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. As a matter of fact, Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish scholar, felt that this text was not just spiritually true, but it was cosmologically true. He said that the moving of Jesus into the north, by reasons he stated that I can't understand, was during the spring and the summer that the winter had passed away and life had now come to the land. And this is when Christ goes into this darkened area. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. And so this is prophesied. He is going to take his disciples from the lowliest of people, does that encourage your heart? It was Abraham Lincoln who said, it's wonderful that God made so many common people, or that he made 
So many common people because there are so many of them. And we are, we identify with Galilee, most of us. Let me show you something else. You can just keep your finger there in Mark and go over to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is prophesying about the 12 tribes that will come from his sons. And he mentions in verse 21, Naphtali. Naphtali is the tribe of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're from a city called Bethsaida. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Now, some of you have a different reading here. Uh, And it's always discussed whenever you get a Hebrew reading. In Hebrew, you don't have vowels. You just have consonants. The context will determine the vowels. Like if I put down SL, is that soul, is that sail, is that seal, or whatever, the context will determine. And so that's why sometimes you can get a word like a uh, basket, also may say a young female goat or something like that, because you're, you're not sure about what the vowels are. Well, the reading of verse 21 by the, the best Old Testament man I know, his name is Derek Kidner, <clears throat> when he says, Naphtali is a doe or a hind. Are y'all familiar with this verse that David uses twice about his military expertise that uh, thou hast made my feet like hinds feet. A hind, if you see them in the mountains, they can rest and walk on, uh, you know, a quarter inch of, of terrain. And it talks about extreme skill. And so David likened his victories to God giving him security. And so the term a female doe or a deer, a doe, a hind, came to be a term for military expertise. Uh, And so Naphtali is a doe. And then the word let loose can also be translated in the same tense of sent. And that is a term used for sending someone with a message. Whenever Jacob confronted Esau, and it said that Jacob sent his people before him to prepare his way for his possibly angry older brother. That's the term used. And so Naphtali is a hind, something that is given extraordinary skill in victory. And it is a hind that is sent. It is a military victory by God that is sent out. And it is sent in verse 21. Because he, Naphtali, gives beautiful words. That Naphtali is a tribe prophetically that will bring a message sent from God about God's great victory. Uh, Some of you have a Bible that doesn't say has beautiful words. Any of you have a Bible that says beautiful fawns? Some of you? Well, this is the consonants can read fawn. And some have felt that it is intended for a double entendre, two meanings. That when you think of a deer bringing fawns, you think of new life. When you think of the message that God sends, it is the gospel. It is a a message that brings new life. And so the prophecy is, that from this little tribe of Naphtali, this tribe in and around the Sea of Galilee, God is going to use it to bring the highest articulated words known to man. And those words will be about the divine victory of God that is sent from Naphtali to the world and will bring new life. Amen.
And so that is why the idea that from Naphtali is going to come the message of the Messiah, that God will bring the lowest of people, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Philip, Nathaniel, Simon the Zealot, and on and on, they're going to bring us the New Testament. From their conversion of Paul, they're going to bring us Paul. All of us are greatly blessed because of a word that came from Naphtali. Ain't that something? Well, go back here to the Gospel of Mark. And so, Galilee as such is going to form the profile of the coming church. The prophecy of Matthew, the prophecy of Genesis. Galilee, when he moves into it, if you were a, a scholar of your Bible, you would say, aha, the time has come. Why is Galilee not just where Christ will minister, not just where what are called the pillars of uh, Peter, James, and John will minister, but this is where the people will be born of that message. That's where we're going to come out of is Galilee. Paul said, I, or Jesus said, I thank thee, O God, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to babies, those that recognize they don't know what's going on and they need a divine guidance. Consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh. Look around. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God hath chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Hath not God chosen, James says, the poor of this world to be rich in faith? I know your poverty, Jesus said, but you are rich. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to we who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. They said to Nicodemus, search, see that no prophet arises from Galilee. When it was said that we found a man of whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. What did Nathanael say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, Galilee? They said in the, to Nicodemus, the, this multitude that knoweth not the law is cursed. When Jesus rose from the dead, the angel spoke to the women who discovered it and said, is this not what he told you when he said he would go before you to Galilee and he will meet you there? That's where most of y'all are from. Uh, Celsus, who was an early uh, dissonant against Christianity in about the uh, second century, he simply said that Christianity was for, quote, only worthless people, Galileans. Julian the Apostate was a, uh, a Roman uh, Caesar that sought to undo what Constantine had done, making Christianity the official religion. And he simply called Christians the lowest name he could call them, the Galileans. And so... What is true of Christ is true of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and it's true of his followers, and it's true of us. Amen. We're not Christians because we were so smart. We thought our way through to the Trinity, the inerrancy of the Bible, the incarnation, the atonement and justification by faith. We didn't do that. I made a seven on a genetics test. I'm not going to think my way through to anything. I got saved because by the grace of God, he showed me that I was an idiot. Did you amen me right there, brother? <laughs> he showed us that I was, the word idios in Greek means the unskilled. It means you can't make it in life. And I was an idiot and God showed me his grace. I've got lots of folks that I talk to about the Lord who don't want anything to do it. You know why? Because they're so smart. They're so strong and they're so holy in themselves that they don't need him. 
And so this forms the character of what will be the church. Only worthless people. Or as one has said, only deplorables. Okay. And so from here are going to come, according to the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul spoke of Peter, James, and John as being the pillars of the faith. And so Mark is going to direct our attention to these people. So I just gave you the longest introduction ever to a message. This is why Mark goes straight to his movement into Galilee and straight to his call of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are, in a sense, the leaders of the 12. They are all fishermen because that is what Jesus is. He brings people up from the dark into the light. And that is what his followers are, are fishermen. And that is what we are to become. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of harvest will raise up workers for his harvest, that we are fishermen. Uh, watch here. In verse 14. After they had been taken into custody, he came into Galilee, preaching the gospel, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And as he was going by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. It says in the Gospel of Luke that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are partners in business. So this is kind of, they're all cousins they're all from Bethsaida. They're all from Naphtali and that area. So these are cousins. Uh, and as such, they are what are called uneducated and untaught men. The book of uh, Acts, it says, and they, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untaught men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't Sadducees. They weren't Essenes. You always at that time would connect yourself to somebody. It was said that you wanted the dust of your rabbi all over you. And they were not Southerners. They're Northerners. They're there to work and make money by getting sunburned and being out in the, in the open. And so these are common men. And a lot of it people don't realize, but this isn't the first time Christ had called them. He doesn't call them sight unseen. He has spent months with them already. Let me show you something. Go to your right, all right, to the gospel of John in chapter one. In John chapter one and verse 35, and the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? These are the first words ever spoken by Christ to his followers. You're following me? He turns and says, Why? Why are you here? What are you looking for? You're looking for a healing? You're looking for a miraculous feeding by fish and loaves? Is, is that what you're looking for? Why are you here? You're looking for a political leader? You're looking for somebody to fix you? What's your motive? What do you seek? And they said in verse 38, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? You're the teacher, I'm the student, and I want to sit in your presence, and I want to rethink life in your presence. Make a note, that has to be your answer. If I were to ask you this morning, I look out, I see you in church, why are you here? That has to be your answer. I'm here because he's the teacher, I'm the student, and I want to know what he thinks. Anytime you're in the presence of an omniscient person, always take notes. Because he's going to tell you stuff that you don't know, that's essential. And so, in verse 39, he said, come and you'll see. All you got to do is come. You don't see and come, you come and see. You come and I'm going to open your eyes. You're going to know things you have never imagined. 
And in verse 39, they came, they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. Isn't that great? They came, they saw, and they stayed. They were not disappointed. And in verse 39, it was about the 10th hour, uh, which is something, 10 a.m. You ever notice when you ask a guy, when did you meet the Lord? They can tell you the season, the day, if you got converted, usually at an older age, and the place that you trusted Christ. You make a mark on your calendar. My life was never the same when I sat down in his presence. And so in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other, it is believed, is John. They were followers of John the Baptist. They're down in Jerusalem. And they follow John. They listen to Jesus. In verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon. We found the Messiah. Jesus looks at him, calls him Cephas because he's got a plan for him. Is it true that God can have a plan for us that we won't know for years later as to what he's doing? He's got a plan. And so now we have got Andrew, uh, John, and Peter. And in verse 43, he purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So there is five. Philip found Nathanael, verse 45. There's six. And so he gets these men. And if you look in chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They go with him to a social gathering. They're just following him and watching him and looking at him. You don't see him giving any great sermons yet. This is a discovery group. They're just watching him. If you'll look at chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, This beginning of his signs, turning of water into wine, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This isn't just a great teacher. This man can create what wasn't there. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he is spending time with them and was baptizing. And it tells you in chapter 4, and uh, let's see, in verse 2, Jesus was not baptizing, his disciples were. And so I make all those points to show you that the men that he calls to follow him, he's known them for a while. And they're a discovery group. Y'all know what I mean when I say a discovery group? I was in Campus Crusade for Christ when I was an early believer. And uh, once you got associated with Crusade, you got into a discovery group. And it was simply that you could sit and listen to an older Christian use terms. And I remember asking a guy named Jim Coatman, when you say that Jesus died for our sins, what do you mean? I remember asking him that. What do you mean? And he said, well, have you ever heard of Passover? Beg your pardon? Okay. Passover was the Jewish deal because they celebrated it because that was when God passed over and didn't judge them because of the blood of the lamb. And the lights came on. Oh, I had questions about inerrancy. I had questions about evolution. I had questions about, you name it. Uh, and it was a discovery group. And they simply, for about eight weeks, would just answer questions. And then you got called up. And that's what you're going to see here in uh, chapter 1 of, of Mark. He sees these men, and they are called now to full time. Verse 7, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. God doesn't call us immediately, I don't think, to a life of total, complete devotion. When you get saved, you've got to figure out what save means. I exhort you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice. You have to learn first about the mercies of God. This is election. 
This is the incarnation of God. This is the substitutionary atonement. Have you ever heard of the term imputation? No. Okay. Our sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness imputed to us. What's righteousness? I'm glad you asked. It's a right standing before God, seeing you in the light of his own holiness. What is atonement? It's where at one we meet because of his death, God and man are brought together. It's also called reconciliation. I beg your pardon. That's a big word. Biggest word I knew when I was a freshman was uh, delicatessen. All right. Reconciliation. That's a big word. And this is what it is. It's where God and man are reconciled. They're friends through the substitution of Christ where our sin was imputed to him. And so we just start learning the lay of the land. And that's why in our church, we have discovery groups, just big bird, little bird Bible studies. You just come and sit. And then we go on up to a higher call. And that's what he gives them here. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you. I want you to mount the potter's wheel. And I am about to, to have you transformed by the renewing of your mind. I don't believe in a second blessing as far as we get uh, more of God. But I think that there is a turning point in a Christian's life where God gets more of him. When you go from an intellectual thing, the mercies of God, and then you realize God now has claims on your life. I want you. First, you wanted me, and I came to you, and now I want you. You took me from an empty tomb. Now I want your tomb empty. I want you alive and well. This fellow that I mentioned to you, Jim Coatman was his name, and he was an early teacher that I had back in 1973. How many of you were not humans? And so many of you were not humans in 73. And I remember Jim sharing his testimony with me. And he said, I grew up in Fredericksburg, Texas, with a Lutheran background, Coatman, good German. And he said, I never, I understood about Christ, but I didn't realize, and he used a term, his claims on my life. And I stopped him. I said, wait, his what? His claims on my life. He's not just a figment of history. He's alive. And he indwells you by his spirit. And he opens his word. And he has a gifting towards you and a purpose for you. And he wants you dead. That he can now inhabit your life. And as he did with his son to incarnate himself through him, he wants to show himself through you. I said, time out. It was an overload. I said, you're kidding. No. Well, that's what these men are now confronted with. You have watched me here for weeks and months. You have watched me talk to people. I've let you do a little baptizing. At the woman at the well, I sent you to get some food. You were meals on wheels. Okay. You went to McDavid's. They didn't have a McDonald's back then. And you got some fries. Okay. And a quarter shekel with cheese. Okay. And you were watching me talk with a woman and you were amazed. For the, you, I changed water into wine and you were amazed. So it's been big bird, little bird here for a few weeks and months. You've watched me. You've sat with me. You've heard me. Well, boys, get ready. Follow me. And I'm going to make you something that you have never dreamed of. Amen. I'm going to make you something that has never crossed your mind that you could do. I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to make you do what I do. I'm a fisher of men. I take men out of the dark and bring them into the light. And guess what? I'm about to do that with you. I'm going to bestow the family business on you. What they are doing in verse 16 is casting a net. And in verse 19, they are mending a net. Are you with me? 
casting, and mending. That's what Jesus does. He takes lost men and he brings them into the light and they die to live again. He brings them up into the light. He is a fisherman. And then he mends them because fishermen would cast and at the end of the day, they would tie that net back. Well, that word mending is the same word that we get when it goes like this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped. It's the word equipping. It means literally that you fix something thoroughly. Katartizo. Artizo, that you fix. Kata, fixed permanently. It means you're going to make something right. We're going to do a triple bypass. And we're going to make your heart do like it's supposed to do. We're going to put this shunt in. And we're going to drain off that fluid. And we're going to make your brain work like it's supposed to work. And that is what Christianity is. It is casting and then it is mending where God starts changing us back into what a human is meant to be. And so that is what Jesus does and that is what these men are about to do. What do y'all call that? It's called the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So you go out and you baptize men in the Father, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You throw the net and then you bring them in and you fix them. That's what Christ does and that is what we do. Let me stop just a second. Are y'all all with me? That is why it is said that Mark starts right here with the pillars of the faith that follow the head of the faith that all the rest of the faith is supposed to do that we catch and we mend. Does God have a purpose for your life? Yes, he does. What's the purpose? To do what Jesus did. You cast and you mend. You have people that name their children after you because you're the one that told them what they had no concept of. The incarnation perfect life, death, resurrection, and salvation by faith. They had no clue of that when they went to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and whatever. They have no clue, and we informed them. And then we take their rotten marriages and their rotten kids, amen, and their rotten ability to handle money and their rotten emotional response in life, and we start mending them. It's the same word used. If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore. It's a word used for a chiropractor of putting a joint back in place. And so that's what the church does. We catch and we mend. Now, let me give you about three points with this. Uh, if you'll notice in verse 17, immediately there left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Point number one, can God do with his people what he is darn well pleased to do and does not have to ask you? He has claims on our life. Abraham, leave where you are, go to a land that I'm going to show you. And guess what? You're about to become a daddy. And you're going to become a head of a nation. Abraham didn't volunteer, but God had the authority to tell him what to do. Uh, Moses, I'm going to take you away from your family, put you with Pharaoh, take you away from Pharaoh, put you out here with Jethro, take you away from him, and I'm going to send you back and I'm going to make you a deliverer. You who are nothing but a shepherd. And I'm not going to ask you to volunteer. I'm going to do it. Doug, does God have that authority? I can do it with your life if I am pleased to do it. 
How about David? You're number seven kid, keeping the flocks. I'm going to make you a king. You need to report to your family right now. And he was anointed. Joseph, you're the 11th out of 12 kids. I'm going to use you to be the king of Egypt, the prime minister. And someday you're going to deliver your brothers and you're going to feed the entire world. And I'm not going to ask your permission. I'm going to give you a vision and I'm going to do it to you. Paul, I will show you how much you must suffer for my sake. I am going to literally arrest you and take you and use you for my purposes. Aaron, I'm going to make you the high priest. Elijah, I'm going to take you away from your family. I'm going to make you a voice. You're going to have a kid you're going to disciple named Elisha. I'm going to take him away from his family and make him a voice. And I'm not going to ask your permission. And so God has that authority to do. May I say something? How boring not to be involved in what God is doing. I, the problem with being an uncommitted Christian is your life is just so darn predictable and boring. You make money, you eat, you make money and you eat and you hang around with people and eat and then you get fat and then you have a heart attack and then you and basically you just gork dead and we bury you, you know. That's no kind of life. Has God created us for something more? Yes. I'm going to let you do what Jesus does. You're going to cast and you're going to mend. You're going to catch and you're going to shape. I'm going to use you as a tool. It's not your knowledge. It's my knowledge. It's not your power. It's my power. It's not your planning. It's my planning. I'm going to put you on like a glove and I'm going to use you till the end of your life. And all I ask you to do is to die and give me your life. And so God has this authority with our life. Number two, there is a sequence to it. Follow me. That's our responsibility. You don't have to figure out how to be a soul winner. You do have to follow me. You have got to recognize that I bought you with my blood and that I have a purpose for you, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you are going to go to my word, and day by day, we're going to spend time, and I'm going to show you attitudes and actions that need to be changed, and we're going to shape you. And so that's going to be your job, is to follow me. I personally have never had a whole lot of problems with the will of God for my life. Because a guy, and again, Campus Crusade taught me early on. The guy said to me, don't worry about God's will for your life. Because when a man says that, he's generally talking about his career and the woman he's going to marry. Okay. He said, don't worry about God's will for your life. It's bigger than you think. He said, you need to be concerned with God's will. And God's will is that you are wise, that you are holy, and that you are eternal. You do that right here and let God take care of tomorrow. You do Monday, let God do Friday. And that's good. And so your job is to follow him, to be in obedience to him. Number two is his responsibility. And I will make you something. I will shape you. I'll put you on the wheel. What are you going to make me? None of your bisai. That's the Greek word right there. You don't need to know that. I have a plan for you and you don't need to know, but you follow me and I'm going to do something with you. That's what makes it the adventure of knowing Jesus Christ. Are you walking with God and looking forward to what he's going to do? Then what are you doing? You're making money and eating. That's pretty much it. And watching Netflix. All right, just go die. Let's continue. Our responsibility, follow. His responsibility is I'll shape you. And the result is I'm going to give a dimension to your life that you can't imagine. You're not just going to be catching fish. You're going to be catching men. I personally think that Christ could have used any illustration here. You're a businessman. I'm going to use you to present men paid up before God. You are a loan officer. I'm going to use you to give away great things. You are a housewife. I'm going to use you 
to raise the people of God. You are a coach. I'm going to use you to lead men into a higher life. I think he could have used anything right here. I'm going to put a dimension on your life that you've never seen before. Well, uh, let me throw something in. How do you do it? You ready? Give you something to memorize. You go, you throw, and you tow. Let me tell you what that means. To be a fisher of men, number one, you have to go. You have to be around fish. You can't alienate from them that I am a Republican. I will not talk to the lost. Okay. You can't do that. You have to go and be among them. You have to be on a first name basis with non-Christians. Are you with me? You can't hold up here in the church and have a fortress mentality. You have to be out and among them. Not to become like them, but to be a, fish, a fisher, or to be a doctor, a physician, to where uh, when they get in trouble, they know who to come to because somebody loves them and somebody likes them and somebody likes to hang out with them and talk with them. And so you have to go. And then second, you got to throw. Now, I was in Israel watching a fisherman. I had never seen a fisherman. And we were out on the Sea of Galilee, and I went, where doggies? I had never seen how you do that. What you do is you have to take your net. The net is a round net. And the edges of the net have weights that are attached to them. So when you hold it in the middle, it hangs down. Okay, it's heavy. And you have to, here's the trick, you have to know how to arrange it on your arm in a certain way. Because if you don't arrange it, you'll lynch yourself. Okay. You have to know how to arrange the uh, net. And then what you do is you throw it like a Frisbee. And the weighted ends are centrifugal. And the weight and the net goes, and it gets like a Frisbee. And it goes out and it hits the water. The heavier ends of it sink down first. And so it goes down like a trap. And you've got the uh, rope in the middle of the net. And so you watch it sink over the little fishies. And then you pull it. And when you pull the middle, and it has had centrifugal force, what kind of force does it have now? Test your knowledge. Centripetal. Now things come together. And so when you pull it, all the little weights come together and it forms a trap and you pull it up with all the fish in it. Ain't that up? And that's what, to catch men, you've got to go where the fish are and then you've got to throw. You've got to throw the net skillfully. You've got to be able to share your testimony in three minutes. That's all a non-Christian will give you. You got to share what I was like, how I got saved, and what changed. And you watch their eyes. You watch their eyes. And then you've got to be able to answer questions. Where did evil come from? How can I know the Bible is? You got to be able to, to work your way around questions. Oh, we all have questions. And then you've got to be able to share clearly uh, God's love, man's sin, the death of Christ, and salvation by faith. Something about God, something about us, something about Christ, something about faith. You've got to be able to share that. That's all you've got to do. And you pull them on in. You tow. Go, throw, and tow. Whenever you have miraculous catchings of fish, you know what the miracle is? It's not that they go where the fish are. That's not a miracle. It's not that they throw the net. That's not a miracle. With you and I, it would be. But they can throw the net. The miracle is that God brings the fish to the net. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I give eternal life to them, and another they will not follow. The elect of God will come. You just share and let God bring them.
go, throw, and then tow. That's all. That's the price of admission. Well, in verse 18, this is your last point. They left their nets. Verse 20, they left their father in the boat with the servants. You are called to a radical commitment. Family, career, security, your own physical life have to take second place. Are you with me? You got it. That's how Abraham does not get led away into the new land until Haran, his father, dies. And so nothing can be higher. Why is that true? Because our model, Jesus, did he put anything higher than the Father's will? Not even his own life. Secondly, our task, we are soldiers going to war. And the task is so important that you have to be willing to say goodbye and even lose your life. That's the task. And thirdly, because of the enmity of the world. If you share with them a medical theory, a political theory, an economic theory, you will have no problems. When you talk about their lack of wisdom, divine life, strength, and acceptability before God, you're insulting their soul. Amen? You can't be afraid of that. Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. There's a natural hatred of Yahweh in man. A G-O-D, they have no problem with it. The New Age movement, they have no problem. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, they have no problem with that. It's not insulting to them. The gospel is. It is salt in the wound. And so you can't even treasure your life when you go to preach the gospel. So the patriarchs had to leave. Moses and the law had to leave. Elijah, Elisha, the prophets had to leave. Jesus and the 12 and grace have to leave. And so do we. And so rightly does Mark begin with the head guy, the pillars, and all of us. We catch and we mend. You know, when I was a younger believer, I was driving down to Dallas one time and I heard a guy come on the radio. I don't know any of you that remember Warren Wiersbe. He was a great, great preacher up at Moody Church in uh, Chicago. And he was talking about Easter. And he said, you know, beloved, there's a lot of names that we speak of Jesus as being. He said, do you know what my favorite name for him is? He said, it's the name that was on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the name that was at the tomb. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here. It's the name that the demons knew. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Holy one of God, you've come to destroy us. He said, my favorite name of Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. He said, if I had been God, I would have sent him to Athens and called him Jesus of Athens because he would have been the smartest of all men. And I would have aligned myself with intelligence. Or he said, I might have been Jesus of Rome. And I would have lined myself with power. Or I might have sent him to Jesus of Jerusalem with religious holiness. But he said, God does not save Athenians, Romans, or Jerusalemites. He only saves Nazarenes. Those that are lowly and know that he needs them. And he said, because I... I'm a Nazarene, and that's us. So Jesus went into Galilee. Father in heaven, thank you for a precious time in your word that we learned a bunch. We learned from Matthew. We learned from uh, Genesis. We learned from John. We learned from Luke. Uh, just what you're doing. And you're going to shape us to catch and to mend. And we can't do that. But you can. You've done it. 
and you know how to make us become something. And all that you ask is that we follow, that we wake up in the morning with a, it is not my life, but thine. I am going to go to your word because I need your light, not mine. And I will need your grace as I obey. And you're going to shape us into those that have the eyes of eagles that can see from a distance, that don't get terrified when we hear the white water of death approaching, that there's something bigger to us. And that is to win, build, send men. And so bless us this day as we continue to study what Julian the Apostate simply called Jesus the Galilean, in whose name we pray.